Hey there, it's Joe. Welcome to another Amped interview. Quick introduction before we jump into our conversation. Now, this person, Emily Joy, that I'll be introducing you to in this interview is a pretty special and talented spoken word poet. I was introduced to her by Randy Elrod, who you may remember from a couple of Amped interviews ago, and I was really taken with the boldness and the passion of Emily Joy as an artist, and I think you'll find the same thing. So I'm going to add a bit of an asterisk. Now, you remember back in the 80s when they introduced those uh, parental advisory stickers. So I'd like to tell folks out there that a few of you may find yourself offended by some of the things that Emily shares or the way that she talks. And I thank you for your grace and I thank you for your patience. But I also, I want to encourage you to try not to be perhaps a bit dismissive when Emily's perspective is a bit different than your own or her approach is different than your own because she's very outspoken. And one of the things that Dan said as he listened to the interview is that the Christian church really needs fire starters. So you don't necessarily need to agree with an individual's perspective, but consider what their role is and what they're attempting to do through their art. Because Emily really is a true artist, and we really appreciate her for that. In fact, before we pushed record on the interview, I described to her my perspective on the role of the spoken word artist in today's Christian culture, And to me, it's a bit like John, you know, uh, John the Baptist, a bit crazy, the long hair, but still speaking truth and speaking truth in love. So that's Emily Joy. We think she's fantastic. Listen to the interview with an open heart and open mind. I think you'll very much appreciate it. God bless. And remember, direct all your emails to joe at frequency.fm. Take care, guys. Frequency.fm presents The Amped Interview. Hey guys, this is Joe at Frequency, and it's time for another interview. I'm really excited about this one. In fact, I woke up way too early in the morning to make sure I had the right questions ready for this conversation. We're going to be talking to spoken word poet Emily Joy today uh, out of Nashville, I believe. Nashville, did I get that right? Yep. Cool. It'd be nice if I did some research before we started (laughs) these things. Uh, Emily Joy is going to be chatting with us about her work, and we're going to meet her. And I want to welcome you to uh, the interview. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always like to start things off just to kind of get a sense of who we're talking to, because, um, well, frankly, spoken word artists, a lot of folks don't know, have never heard of you, let let alone um, listen to you on the radio or anything like that. So maybe you could take a few minutes and share a little bit of your journey with us. Okay. um, Well... So I have been doing um, poetry. I've been doing spoken word for about um, four years, but I've been writing uh, poetry since I was a child. Um, And I've got, you know, books full of poems that I wrote for the eye. Uh, And I imagine eventually I'll probably put some of those together in a book. Um, But about four years ago, I was I had I was exposed to spoken word poetry for the first time. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I can do that. That sounds like something that I can do. And um you know that uh, line in Parks and Rec where Leslie Nope is like, anything can be a slam poem if you say it like this. <laughs> and I was like, well, let me just start saying it like that and we'll see what happens. Um, and so that's how that's how I started doing that. So I, um, that happened when I was attending Moody Bible Institute, 
Um, I have a degree from there in uh, philosophical theology, wow. which is fun and uh, way fancier than, or way not as fancy as it sounds, I should say. It's one of those degrees, not to not to depart too much, where you'd say, so you work in a coffee shop right? <laughs> when it's all done. But, but I have, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I'm very, I'm very, uh. I'm very comfortable with that. It was not it was not a career move. I'll say that. <laughs> right. So Moody Bible College. And uh -huh. what made you decide that you wanted to go to Bible college to begin with, let alone study Phyllis? I can't remember what you said. Philosoph <laughs> Philosophical theology. Okay, there um, you go. Honestly, I didn't really want to go to college. Um, but my parents were encouraging of going to college and uh, the only other thing that I really felt strongly about was politics. Pr prior to going to Moody, I had taken a political science class and I just fell in love with it. I thought it was so fun because I'm like, I'm an argumentative person. I like I like conflict. I like, you know, the the back and forth of discussion and stuff. So I was like, this is great. I'm going to go like I thought I'd go into politics or at least like journalism about politics, something yeah. like that. Um, but then I discovered theology and I was like, oh my God, this is just like politics, except for it's way more fun because you can say that God agrees with you. And so, right. so then I went into theology instead, which is maybe not the best reason, um, but I think it turned out okay. Um, but yeah, I really, I didn't really want to go to college at all. Um, but when I found theology, I was like, well, this is the thing that I care about enough to study. Um, and I, I happened to get into Moody. It was the only college that I applied for. If I, if I didn't get in, I probably wouldn't have gone um, anywhere, but, but I did get in. And so I went. Cool. Yeah. So that's a little bit about how you got where you're at. Yeah. Uh, before we started, I asked you, should I describe you as a spoken word artist mm -hmm. or a poet? And we got to spoken word poet. So I'll, I'll try to remember to use yes. it that way. So I'm interested before uh, we started the interview was I actually did some research. I went through and I listened to some of your pieces. We were introduced by the way, through a, a common friend, uh, Randy Elrod. I want to acknowledge that. Hi, Randy. Hey, hey Randy. Um, but uh, so I went and, uh, and checked out some of your work. And um, frankly, it's in incredibly provocative, which I appreciate. And uh, I use the, I like to use the term hypnotic because I started listening at my day job and then found that I could not work and listen to you at the same time because your, um, your delivery, but also the, the subject matter uh, is uh, it, it pulls you in. And so there's a couple of pieces that just jumped out at me um, maybe we can talk about how they, they came to fruition. And, um, the first one is, a uh, um, excuse me, folks, thank God I'm a virgin. So <laughs> that's a pretty good example of the provocative nature of your poem poetry. So talk to me about that one. Um, okay. So that poem, uh, what do they call it in, in literature? It's called a, um, a composite character where you make a, a character yeah. out of several different people. That poem is based on a composite character, um, of several different primarily men, um, that I knew in, in Bible college, um, who, who were all like, I could never marry a girl if she wasn't a virgin. I just don't think I could do it. And of course, you know, at the time, you know, I had not, I had not sort of come into myself. I was still very much like in, in the world of like evangelical fundamentalism and, um, and, but even at the time, it still didn't really make much sense to me. And I had been, I had been raised in the, in the heyday of like the, um, like I kissed dating goodbye hysteria. Um, like that book came out, um, shortly before, you know, I was going into adolescence and stuff. And so, um, so yeah, I was raising the heyday of all that with the, the purity rings and the, the conferences and the talks at youth group and all these things. Um, and 
it, it, it really did not do me any good or any of my friends. Like it, I, I, I didn't see anybody who did well with it. Um, cause I, I saw one of two things happen. Either people managed to follow the rules and became like judgmental jerks about mm. everybody else, or they didn't follow the rules and felt like all of this undue, like shame and, yeah. um, you know, guilt and all of this stuff. And I was like, this is good for no one. This is, this is not good for the people who do it. This is not good for the people who can't do it. Like this is good for no one. And I, I found that, you know, all of, all of these rules and stuff just kind of, uh, just kind of turned us up empty. Um, and so, so when I started, like, finally at, after Bible college started, you know, talking to these different people and friends of mine. And, you know, once, once we all kind of got out of that scene and then we're able to like go back and reflect and talk about, you know, different experiences and stuff, we were like, holy cow, like this was actually really messed up. Um, and, and I remember at the time, you know, the, the, the intro of the poem, thank God I'm a virgin or he probably wouldn't want me. I thought as I listened silently, like that's, that's based on a, a conversation that, that I had with somebody that I was trying to date at Bible college. And he was like, well, I don't think I can marry a virgin. And in, in my mind, I was like, well, good God, like good thing I am. I was at the time. I mean, you know, not now, but right. But, well, you're married. Like, so we get yes, that. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I was like, good God, like good thing I am like, because what if I wasn't, you know? And I, I just remember that thought sticking with me through the years. Um, so when I, when I went back to write the poem, that was, that was the, the picture in my mind. Yeah. I think you, you touched on something that's resonated with me lately, which is the idea of shame mm-hmm. and how we in Christian culture tend to wield that as a weapon, uh, against other people in both inside our own culture, um, and, uh, outside. So, you know, if, if you're, you know, if we're going to speak on social issues, you know, if you're not, so if you're not a virgin, does that mean you're worthless? Does that mm-hmm. mean that um, that that mistake defines you forever, and mm-hmm. therefore you aren't deserving of anything wonderful? When the message of Christ and redemption mm-hmm. is completely counter to that. Well, and I think that message hits specifically strong um, with women, um, yeah. because if you look at sort of like the language around how we speak to women about sexual purity as opposed to like how we speak to men about with sexual purity. And I put that in quotes because I, I kind of, I kind of object to the whole concept. But if you look at the way that we think about, or if you look at the way that we talk about those things, yeah. uh, when, when, when women uh, transgress or whatever you want to call it, it's viewed as like this thing that like fundamentally changes who you are. Like, mm, it, yeah. it, like there's like a, there's like a, a conversion that happens inside of you to something else. Whereas with men, it's, it's framed more as like a mistake or like a misstep or, you know, something that you can just like, you know, it was bad, but just move on and your life's not, but women are like sullied. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't get that sort of sullying language with men. And so that was, that was another big reason why I wrote the poem. Cause I was like, there's a disparity in the way that we talk about um, this based on gender. And I really don't like it. Well, thank God I'm a virgin. Or he probably wouldn't want me. I thought as I listened silently while he told me that he just couldn't be with someone who had been with someone else, which is like 90% of adults by the age of 25, so your already limited pool is shrinking very quickly, but don't let me discourage you. Carry on. Tell me how you saved yourself 
how you've saved up enough points with God to buy an unspoiled bride, and you will not settle for less. Tell me about her white dress, how it will mean something. So I appreciate your insight on that. The next one I wanted to bring up is uh, You Are Not a Princess. Uh, another one that's uh, your characteristic delivery, but um, very challenging. And it seems directed again at kind of that insular Christian culture. So tell me about um, the direction or the velocity of You Are Not a Princess, how that came to be. Um, so I'm the oldest of seven. Ah. Um, I have one brother and then five sisters after him. Um, and so when I began to realize sort of like the emptiness of the way we had been taught about sex and gender roles and all of these things, one of my first thoughts was like, oh my God, my sisters, like my sisters are coming up in this, like, what are some ways that I can start to counteract some of those messages, maybe in a more like basic and sort of age appropriate level too, because it starts, you know, it starts way before, um, it starts way before somebody goes to like an abstinence rally and has like a purity ring and stuff like that. Right. right? Before, before any of that happens, we have these basic um, cultural narratives that we feed to young girls, like babies yeah. about, um, you know, who they are in the world and what their role is. And I, I thought, you know, well, let's talk about the princess thing because that's a huge thing. And all these little girls and, you know, my sisters, of course, even they have been princesses for Halloween and all this stuff. And that's fine. I'm not saying it's bad to like, let your kids dress up as princesses. What I'm saying is that, um, I think it's important to talk about which princesses and what they're doing. Because if you look at like the vast majority of princess stories that we have in our culture, with the exception of a couple, I think, um, like frozen was a really good example of how, um, you know, they actually, they, the men were, kind of like the oafs in that story. And they didn't, the one that was going to try to save her turned out to be the bad guy and they just saved themselves through girl power and stuff. So I think that's a great message. However, um, the, other than that, like, as far as I can remember, the vast majority of these sort of princess narratives, I'm like looking at, okay, what do they do? What do they do? What do the princesses do? Not really anything. They just like sit and wait and look pretty and are kind of useless um, they fall asleep and have to be kissed in order to wake up because they were stupid enough to touch a needle. They like, you right. know, all these things, they get locked in a, in a attic by their stepmother and have to be rescued by birds. Like they, they, they can't ever rescue themselves, you know? Um, so, it's, so a, what, it's like a message of, um, passivity versus, uh -huh. um, empowerment. Yeah, I, exactly. And so, so, girls are, are, and, and then once they get to, um, you know, kind of adolescence and we start like, you know, having these talks in youth group of like, well, you know, you just need to wait on the man to pursue you. And it doesn't sound wrong because that's the princess message they've been listening to since they were two. Right. Right. And so that's why I was like, well, let's take a step back and talk about this princess thing because, um, you don't need a man or anybody else to save. And I know that's like a real, like, Yay, feminism sort of thing, right? But, like, you actually don't, though. You don't need anybody to save you or to make you a whole person. Like, it's not, it's not, like, your, it's not like your life before a partnership forms with a male human is, like, uh, the prelude to the main event, you know? Like right. that, and that's, but that's what we get in these, in these messages. And so that's kind of what I wanted to start deconstructing in that. I appreciate that message because um, I have a daughter who's 22, um, I also have a son who's seven and I'm very aware in, in the woman who my daughter is that she is shaped by the messages she received early on. Mm -hmm. And so when you say, um, it's not to say you're not valuable when you say you were not a princess, 
It's no, to say, and, and, and I want people to understand <clears throat> that's not what you're saying. You're not saying, no. Hey, um, you're not attacking anybody. It's saying, listen, this is the gender stereotypes you're going to hear. Mm-hmm. These are not true. Uh, another way I took it, and I guess it's open to interpretation. That's yeah. the beauty of poetry is um, if, if you choose to move forward in life with unreal expectations about the world, what the world owes you, you're mm-hmm. going to be disappointed. And it's better for you to understand that now than to, um, to have the world smack you down and not to be strong enough to know how to respond. Oh my God. Yes. Do you know how many women I went to Bible college with who thought that God owed them a husband? Because this is the message. Like you think that like, okay, well, all your life, you've heard this story about how, you know, God's going to plan the perfect man for you. But like, maybe not, maybe he doesn't have a husband for you. Like I, you never guaranteed anything. And I, 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 like, it's, it sounds so silly to me that you even have to say that, but like, but that's a very ubiquitous sort of narrative. And yeah, it's, it, it, it can breed a lot of like resentment and really like hard feelings when it doesn't work out the way that you were told it was supposed to, but maybe it was never supposed to. When you are least expecting it, he will come for you. He will heal the ache in your heart, the one they put there in the first place. So just wait. High up in your castle where no one can hurt you, pray. Pacify the powers that be. Manage their expectations. Be a princess waiting to be saved. Your other half is out there somewhere. Darling. So we, we've talked about a couple of provocative poems, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel in some ways that it's your role to be provocative? Yeah. So I, I've got like two demographics that I do really well with, um, like 18 to 26 year old women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like 35 to 50 year old white men um, who are pastors at churches yeah. who bring me in to like say these things because they want to introduce these ideas. They're like undercover cool. They're like trying to make change from the inside, but they don't want to get fired. So they bring me in. And then if I say stuff that offends people, they can just throw up their hands and be like, what? I didn't know she was going to say it. Right. So then it doesn't matter. And then, and that's fine. Cause I'll never see those people again. So I don't care if they're mad at me. I right. don't care if they send me hate mail. And then, um, they have those ideas introduced and then they can start having that discussion because you know, they're, they're not as liberal as I am. They're somewhere over here. Right. So they're like, they have these ideas introduced at least. And so it kind of facilitates this discussion. And I honestly, I mean, like I didn't set out to like have a ministry to straight white men in their 35 to 50 year old range, but like it happens and I'm, I'm glad to do it because I'm like, I, if that's a, that's a service that I can provide to you to kind of help you introduce these ideas without getting fired. Yeah. That's a, you know, I, I didn't think about it that way. And the fact that you embrace that role yeah, is really remarkable <laughs> uh, because I think it takes um, a pr- some um, some good self self knowledge to understand who you are to have confidence in yourself to be able to say my role is to be the fire starter, right? So I'll come in and I'll and I'll spark the conversation. I'm going to step out of the way and allow you guys to go. What was that? Yeah. Something you've recently shared, I think, in, in a very timely manner unintentionally timely is a, a new poem that, uh, that's out there on, um, YouTube and shared throughout the, uh, the social media is how to love the sinner and hate the saint in five easy steps. Mm-hmm. Very provocative, which is, which is your nature. Uh, I, I want to encourage people to go listen to it mm-hmm. because it is very representative of who you are. 
it's very challenging to people in terms of how we address the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And people feel very strongly about that. If I understand correctly, that poem came about in, in you basically taking pieces of conversations that you've heard and putting them together to represent how we as the Christian culture tend to treat our brothers and sisters that are uh, LGBTQ. Yeah, honestly, like I said before, I, I almost don't feel like I wrote the poem. I feel like I, I more curated it um, yeah. because ev everything that is in the poem are real live, actual things that I've heard or read people saying, um, you know, and, and it's funny. Um, there's been a not insignificant number of people who've heard the poem and don't realize that it's satire. Right. So a friend of mine, uh, same thing. Yeah. And, and I didn't expect that to happen. I thought to myself, I'm being so obvious. I'm being so like tongue in cheek. I'm being so satirical that maybe even like too satirical in some places. Um, and so when I put it out, I was like, surely everybody's going to realize this is satire. Um, there's been a few people, like not not an insignificant number of people that have not realized that it's satire. And I did not expect that. But I, as I as I started thinking about it, I, I was like, it kind of makes sense a little bit because um, the conversation around, um, I would say, a lot of social issues, but particularly around um, the conversation of how Christians speak to and over and about LGBTQ persons um, has gotten like the, the level of hysteria has gotten so elevated, yeah. you know, um, that, that these, these hateful things are just par for the course in public discourse day in and day out. Like, like we're, we're so desensitized. I mean, Donald Trump is running for president. Like we're so desensitized to hearing t terrible things being said in the public discourse that, you know, I can, I can write these like horrible, horrible lines in this poem that are just hateful and awful, you know, on purpose to kind of expose the hypocrisy of it. And people don't realize that that's what I'm doing because they're so used to hearing these hateful things that they think I'm being serious. Right. Um, and that to me, when I realized that I was like, God, that's just so, that's so sad and unfortunate. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think one of the more poignant responses that I saw to that poem was on social media where a person commented, they, they wish they had the courage to share that with mm -hmm. other folks no matter what side you come on uh, in terms of whether you're affirming or non-affirming of the uh, LGBTQ community, um, regardless of which side you come in on that, that argument of sin, not a sin, you're still called to love mm -hmm. regardless. Well, at, at this point, homophobia has sort of become a measuring stick for a lot of people as to whether you're a real Christian. Like, Correct. Like if you're not, if you're not like saying all these hateful things, then people are like, then you're not really a real Christian. I think that's sad. I think that's sad that we're, that's where we've gotten to that, um, being hateful and, and judgmental and shameful towards, towards LGBTQ persons is, um, you know, a litmus test of your authentic Christianity, um, in a lot of, in a lot of spaces. Well, for me, the thing that it, it called out to me, and I wrote this down as a question, but I, it's really more of a statement, which is what, you know, what's the, the bigger sin to uh, to be gay mm -hmm. or to choose not to love. And since the greatest of commandments is to love your neighbor as mm -hmm. yourself, I would argue that the bigger sin is to choose not to love. Mm -hmm. You know, um, once you've called, once you've chosen to enter into a community and given somebody the gift of accountability, you can start to have that dialogue with them if you think it's appropriate. But if you don't know that person, if you don't love, if you don't truly know and love that person, 
don't start that conversation. Ask them how they've been, but don't wait for an answer you don't want to know for. Under no circumstances should you ever attend their wedding, even if the sinner is your child, especially if the sinner is your child. Being there would just send the message that you approve of their lifestyle. When you are SVP, say something like, Dear friend, I regret to inform you that I will not be able to attend as I do not believe in celebrating sin. Yours respectfully. Let everyone know why you're not going, but do send them a gift, a Bible. Highlight important passages in Leviticus and put a bookmark in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If they never speak to you again, this is not your fault either. People hated Jesus too because he spoke the truth just like you're doing when you love the sinner and hate the sin. Five. Well, considering um, the subject matter of how to love the sinner and hate the sin, I, I mentioned that it's somewhat timely considering the tragedy in Orlando. As you consider what you wrote and then some of the responses in Orlando, how are you processing that experience? Honestly, the responses that I've seen, especially on the internet, have been more sobering to me than anything else, just because it's like it's like they read my poem and like took lines out of it and decided to put that into Facebook, which is so, you know, sad to me. I'm like, man, I like we really have so much more work to do. And I yeah, I knew that, you know, I knew we had work to do, but just like the way that I've seen so many people who claim to be Christians responding to it has been um so tragic to me. And I think, you know, like and I know a lot of people have said this, but I'm like that, like that could have been me. Like I go to the gay bar in our town. Like sometimes, you know, like there's all like, it absolutely could have been me. Right. Like, or, or any of my friends, anybody that I love, I have so many friends and it, it, it it's just like, you know, so many friends that, that go, um, that go to those places as well. And so it happened to be in Orlando, Yeah, but you know, it could have been, been in Nashville. It could have been Nashville. It could yeah. have been, you know, Minneapolis. It could have been these places where I have people that I love. Um, and to me, that is like the most sobering part. Um, you know, that's what my, my husband said that he was like, my first thought is that could have been you. And I was like, yeah, totally could have been. Um, and so, so I don't know. I don't, I don't have much to say about it other than that, just cause I, like, it's so, I, I'm still processing. Like, I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, like I spent all of Sunday just like hanging out and crying. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 still a lot of it's still a lot of processing. But yeah, I just I want what I want people to understand about that. I think is this that yes, this particular um, person who shot people in Orlando um, happened to be uh, Muslim, um, but he is an American citizen. He was born here and raised here. And so the culture that he grew up in is American. And so what I want people to start questioning as they're processing this is, um, what is it about American culture that causes somebody to go get an assault weapon and shoot 50 gay people, 50 gay people of color? Yeah. On, on, on purpose, you know, like what, what is it? And, and that's not, that's not, people are wanting to make it like, that's a specifically, um, a thing about Islam. And it's like, no, this is, this is Christianity has problems with homophobia, just like Islam does. Um, there are, there are the, the problems with homophobia even stretch beyond religion because we have, um, like a secular American problem with homophobia too. Um, so, 
So these, this is beyond, you know, and it, we need to think about how are, how are our actions, our beliefs, our theology, our words contributing to a culture of violence against gender and sexual minorities? Um, and I think that is going to be a question that, that people are going to need to interrogate in themselves in the coming weeks and months as we're processing this, because I think, I think the answers can be, uh, the answers to that questions can be really sobering. Absolutely. I, I want to thank you for your response to that. And, uh, I want to affirm you for your passion and and for what the mantle that you've chosen to take on as an individual and as an artist to um, kind of explore the growing edges that we have as a Christian culture, because there's a lot of us, as we alluded to earlier, don't have the courage to do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I recognize that there, some of our audience is going to listen to this. They're going to be offended. They're going to be shocked. And that's okay. You because- can tell them to send their hate mail to me and not you. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, they can send it to anybody. I mean, um, Joe at Frequency.fm, you know, I'm more than happy to have a dialogue with folks. But I really wanted to make sure that people understand that um, you are an artist, that you are um, you are passionate and compelling, and that we as a Christian culture need to uh, allow these conversations. We need to explore our growing edges and to recognize that um, the the edge that you represent may be polarizing compared to where you're at, but it could be that your growing edges, you need to move away from the the very single-threaded thoughts uh, mm-hmm. process that Christian culture has become. So I want to affirm you as we're mm-hmm. wrapping up. So I, what I want to do is um, I want to invite folks to connect with you, um, to learn more about your work. Uh, what's the best way to to, to get your music, to support you in music. What's the best way to, to it, has music. Uh, it does have music. Uh, what's the best way to, um, to kind of explore some of your work to support you as an artist and to learn more about you? Um, so the best way to, um, get a hold of my poems and, um, to support me if you feel so inclined with dollars is to go to, uh, emilyjoypoetry.bandcamp.com. Um, and there you can stream and download all the work that I have so far. Um, and, uh, Bandcamp's good. I see, um, more of the profit from that than like iTunes or something like that. Um, and then also, um, if you don't have, uh, money or you don't want to support financially, you can also just like follow me on the social media and engage with me in conversation. Cause that's really meaningful to me too. When I, um, put things on the internet, I like to know that there are people out there listening and I'm not just like expelling into the void. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm Emily joy poetry on all social media. That's Instagram, um, Twitter, and then facebook.com slash Emily joy poetry. Um, so it's the same across the board and you can just find me on all of those places and, um, and connect with me that way. And we can talk that way if you want to. Cool. I, I appreciate your time. Love hearing what you have to share. And, um, I hope that our audience connects with you as well. So thank Frequency. you for FM is a podcast me. featuring Christian artists, authors, creatives, and experts. For more music reviews, book reviews, and articles, please visit us at Frequency.fm.